The way in which these guidelines from the CDC have been picked up by policymakers at every level of the healthcare system, people who appropriately use their medication are being abruptly denied them, and more than half had experienced a hospitalization as a result. So we're actually incentivizing the very kind of thing that we're trying to avoid. There's a lot that is happening right now that is, is very harmful to pain patients, particularly those who currently take opioids for pain. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. In 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention laid out guidelines for primary care doctors prescribing opioids to treat chronic pain. Essentially, these guidelines stated that opioids should not be the first line of treatment for pain and that other methods should be tried first, which is perfectly sensible. But when it came to dosing and duration, these guidelines, not laws, guidelines started to become widely misinterpreted. In efforts to reduce overall prescribing, the CDC implored doctors to carefully weigh the benefits and risks of increasing dosage above 50 morphine milligram equivalents, MMEs, per day. And people should avoid increasing dosage to above 90 MME per day. For some perspective, roughly 50 MME is about 50 milligrams of hydrocodone. So that's like five, 10 milligram pills per day. And we don't need to get into the weeds about MMEs, but what wound up happening across the country is that doctors, medical boards, and even legislators took the guidelines as black letter law and clearly mistook the intended audience for the guidelines, primary care providers, not pain management specialists, primary care. This is the doctor you go see for a wellness checkup or if you have a strep throat. And in some extreme cases, states like Oregon were considering radical new policies that would forcibly taper all patients off of their opioids. So why is all this important? Aren't prescription opioids, after all, the very substance that ignited a massive wave of overdose deaths across the country? It's not that simple. So well-intended efforts to reduce everyday people's exposure to high doses and long durations of opioids started to hit the wrong target. Patients with chronic, intractable, debilitating pain. I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. On this show, we've covered the plight of patients before, and we've expressed skepticism at the idea that reducing the volume of opioids will net the kind of outcomes we all want to see. Outcomes like reduced overdose deaths and reduced treatment admissions, but also we want to see an increase in function, mobility, and quality of life for people living in pain. Roughly 50 million people in this country suffer from chronic pain, and yes, after trying spinal injections and physical therapy and exercise and all kinds of non-opioid approaches, many people do find relief because of opioids. And we're just out here saying that they're not the, the demon public enemy number one that they've been made out to be. So to discuss where prescribing policies are at today 
and what's happened since the guidelines have been put out. With me is my co-host, Troy Farah. Troy, what's up? Hey, how's it going? And we have an excellent guest today, civil rights attorney, writer, and advocate, Kate Nicholson. Kate has been a critical asset to the pain community, and she's been speaking up about how policy intended to help is actually causing more harm. Kate, welcome to Narcotica. Thanks, Zach. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. We are really thrilled to have you on today. Troy, do you want to kick off the conversation? So, Kate, you were just telling us this story about how you were recently uh, visiting a sick relative at the University of Colorado's main hospital, which is a pretty good hospital out here. You saw these advertisements and sent us some photos, and they are pretty absurd. You know, we, we see all these signs and statistics posted about opioids here, Um Tell us a little bit about that. I just happened to be at the hospital yesterday visiting a sick relative. And these were signs that were pretty much everywhere you looked. Anytime you walked into an elevator, when the elevators closed, the entire elevator doors on the inside were very brightly hued images, almost sort of eye candy of pills everywhere and saying, you know, Colorado can get rid of opioids and, you know, talk to your doctor about pain-free options that don't involve opioids. Almost every column that I walked by had statistics about how student dependence can develop and, and how many people die from, uh, they said, from opioids in Colorado every day. I was overwhelmed partly because there were so, so many. They were everywhere, but also because they did remind me sort of of the pill pictures that Damien Hurst did. I mean, they're very brightly hued. They have pretty pictures of the pills with the names underneath them. They're certainly drawing people in. And I'm all for opioid sparing. I mean, if there are other effective ways of managing pain, I think it's a very important and appropriate you know, message for people. People, but a lot of the statistics that are on the posters are the more alarmist ones, not mentioning, for example, that the people who die in Colorado are generally dying not from prescription opioids, and that when those people die of overdose, there are usually multiple substances, polypharmacy deaths, you know, often five or so in combination, typically with alcohol. And so it, it felt both, you know, intended to draw you in in a very big way and get your attention, but also somewhat alarmist. And this idea that we just all have to defeat opioids, you know, obviously, we need to be cognizant of the risks. But the thing about prescription opioids is that they remain a medication as well with appropriate uses. And so I was a bit taken aback by, by the alarmist approach. Let's let's talk about some of those statistics. Like one that I see come up a lot is that approximately 80% of the global opioid supply is consumed in the United States and then more specifically like NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, they'll put out these estimates that sound really scary like 81% of the world's supply of oxycodone is consumed in the US. Can you talk about like why these statistics, yeah, they're very alarming, they sound very bad, but why aren't they all that meaningful? 
Well, I mean, they're they're excellent, you know, statistics for PR for for shifting the conversation. But for example, in the situation that you mentioned with respect to oxycodone, that's because hydrocodone and oxycodone are the formulation of opioids that we use in this country. In Europe, they use different formulations. So, you know, the truth is just more complicated. As with all of this, you know, there are elements of truth in the advertisements and statistics we do in the United States and Canada and Australia and to some degree in Europe, consume more opioids than many other countries. But in many other countries in the world, there are no options for end-of-life care for pain relief. So there is a bit of the feast and famine phenomenon worldwide. It is true that the first world countries have access to pain care in a way that many countries in the world simply do not, which is not an ideal situation. And then the statistics are are sort of spun in a very specific way to make it look uh, a bit more alarmist. It is true that we consume more and we probably did prescribe too liberally for a period of time, although prescribing has fallen precipitously since 2012, really since 2010, but dramatically since 2012 in this country. Some of them are older statistics, they're very selective statistics, and they are fairly, fairly alarmist and not providing any sort of context for understanding the nuance in the situation. We're seeing a lot of fallout from this hysteria about opioids. People seem to come to you a lot. They kind of bring these issues to you and and you sort of become a voice for this community. What are people telling you? What are you hearing from folks who are being cut off from opioids, who are suffering from chronic illness and can't get the medications that actually help them? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the the saddest part of my stepping into this conversation is that I get unsolicited calls and emails every single day from people who are quite desperate. Many of them are acutely suicidal. Many of them have been bedridden and have lost their ability to work and function. I get emails from family members who are financially devastated because they no longer have a working person in the household. I hear from families who've lost loved ones when they were precipitously denied medication and the loved ones turned to the very potent street supply and died of overdoses. So what I hear from people is is certainly not what is recommended by public health authorities. Uh, What's happening in real time is that people are being abruptly denied their medication, people with cancer, people with sickle cell, people with other very serious disabilities and chronic diseases are either unable to fill their prescriptions or their doctors are precipitously stopping their prescriptions or they're being dropped in care. There were some very alarming statistics recently, a couple of different studies. One suggested that 40% of primary care doctors will not treat someone who uses opioids for pain. Um, And there was a recent study that suggested that 81% are reluctant to, even as something like 75% of them are worried that their patients will turn to the illegal market. So because of what you were talking about, Zach, in the beginning of the call, the way in which these guidelines from the CDC have been picked up by policymakers at every level of the healthcare system, laws in more than 38 states, medical boards are using the dosage guidance in a very strict rule-like way, major pharmacy chains have adopted aspects of them, as have major payers that are causing delays or denial of fills, there is just so much pressure on the medical system and on physicians. And of course, then there's also DEA oversight. And what's happened is people who appropriately use their medication are being 
abruptly denied them. I started talking about this because it happened to me uh, several years ago, and Human Rights Watch issued a report that it was happening, that doctors were denying people care, even against their better medical judgment because of fear of liability. And in the last year, um, now there are studies actually coming down. You know, there was a study of, of Medicaid patients in Vermont who were at high daily doses for long durations, and the average time of discontinuation was a single day, and more than half had experienced a hospitalization as a result. There are other studies that show that destabilizing someone's dose alone puts them at a threefold greater increase of an overdose-related death. So we're actually incentivizing the very kind of thing that we're trying to avoid. So, you know, there's a lot that is happening right now that is is very harmful to pain patients, particularly those who currently take opioids for pain. Yeah, so I mean, we'll definitely want to talk more about you know what that harm looks like in in everyday people and and the people who reach out to you looking for help and appear rather desperate. But before doing that, I think for listeners, it could help to zoom out a little bit because the system of of, of prescribing and healthcare and insurance and laws are quite complex and have a lot of layers to them. I think what what might help is like in this system of control, where have things broken down? Because I talk to to Leo Boletsky about this all the time, and he's a professor of law and health sciences and really knows the regulatory system, as do you. And he calls the opioid crisis a, quote, multiple systems failure. So do you sort of like agree with that structural analysis? And and can you sort of talk about if that's the right diagnosis here, what are the policies currently being put in place? And, and why are they taking us down the wrong path? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I see it as Leo does as a multiple system failure, but I also sort of see it as a syndemic which is sort of when you have multiple things that are called public health epidemics that affect each other in synergistically negative ways. And I would argue that not treating pain appropriately, basically, you know, there was a sort of recognition in the 90s that we needed to treat pain. I would argue that that is actually correct. When you look at the World Health Organization's causes of disability, Pain is number one and four of the top 10 reasons for years lived with disability worldwide. It is one of the top four reasons for people going to the doctor on the list of the top 10 diseases worldwide. It is four of 10. And as you mentioned, 50 million Americans have some form of of daily or near daily pain and almost 20 million have pain that prevents them from participating in basic life activities or disabling pain. So I I don't think we were wrong to recognize that pain was not treated well. I think the, the error was sort of the way in which we simply decided the solution was to throw opioids at everyone in, in solving this rather than dealing with the systemic failures that were already present. And three of the big ones are doctors are radically undereducated in how to treat pain. There are study after study that shows you know, that veterinarians get much more training than physicians do in how to treat pain. So it's really not part of the basic medical curriculum which is part of the reason that the CDC targeted primary care physicians, because those who go on to specialize in pain management receive additional training. But if you're just in medical school, you're really not learning how to treat pain, which is 
astonishing to many people, considering that pain is one of the main reasons people go to the doctor in the first place. And it is also the case that pain is radically under-researched, given its sort of relevance and disabling consequences and prevalence in society. It is on par with many of our other major diseases, and yet the research dollars are very low. And people may say, well, we've always had pain. We understand it. Why does it matter? Uh, Research really matters for a couple of reasons. I mean, one sort of interesting aside, not to get in the weeds too much, um, one of the things that they're looking at is why people develop chronic pain in the first place. Because basically, everybody... um, feels pain, right? I mean, pain is a basic biological function that helps us. So the question is what happens when pain becomes extreme and pain becomes chronic. And what we know is in both of those situations, you don't heal well, for example, after surgery, unless your pain is treated when it becomes extreme. So one of the things that's looked at is, you know, why does pain become chronic? And one of the things we know is that up to 70% of people with chronic pain are women. And it was only in 2016 that NIH decided that we should start using some female uh, rats and mice in biomedical testing. And we know now, or at least in animals, entirely different cells are involved in pain processing in males and females. In females, it's T cells, and in males, it's glial cells. So we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. We're about four years into scratching the surface of even understanding pain processing, which is a pretty fundamental thing. And so research is important for that reason, but research is also important for treatment options. And when it's radically underfunded, the other systemic problem that happens with treating pain is that a lot of these alternatives, these quote unquote safer alternatives are not well covered by insurance. And main reason for that is that we don't have a great deal of research backing them up. So there's sort of this circular problem of payers will only cover things that have an evidence basis, and yet um, many of these alternatives are not accessible to people. So to back up, you know, we didn't ever treat pain well to begin with. We still aren't treating it well. So I I, I think if we're going to get out of this, we need to invest in treating pain. But of course, we also need to invest in treating addiction more broadly. I mean, uh, I would say also our failure to adequately address mental health in this country plays into that systemic failure or syndemic problem. So, you know, then, you know, if you're talking about Leo's views, there are also other reasons why people may want to use drugs. And so Leo has looked at sort of some of the social determinants of health and socioeconomic changes and not just supply size reasons why um, people may have started using using medication. But I think it's also important when we have this conversation to back up, and we've talked about this before, and recognize that at least in terms of our best data, you know, most people who uh, misuse a prescription opioid did not get it directly from a doctor. So there's sort of this gap in the narrative that's told that most people who are dying on the streets uh, went to a doctor, were sort of wrongly prescribed an opioid, and and ended up overdosing. Sort of causal chain on that is just way too way too neat. Right, and that that line, you know, about how the majority of people who are overdosing and dying aren't getting these medicines from doctors. Like that's not going to be on a sign in a hospital, right? So, like the, the it just doesn't comport with with the statistics and the PR and and, and the narrative that, that that's sort of out there. And and Troy, I think you wanted to pivot to actually the case of a doctor who is being held accountable for what happened to some of his patients, right? 
Well, right. Yeah. So a lot of patients are getting the, the wrong end of the stick on this opioid hysteria, but a lot of doctors are too. Last week, uh, the North Carolina Medical Board told Dr. Thomas Klein, a 76-year-old physician from Raleigh, to surrender his DEA license, which he did. He is currently under investigation by the board, but as far as I know, the reason for the investigation has not been made public. And I don't know much about Dr. Klein, but you know, one thing he did do was he kept a blog on Medium that was like a list of suicides associated with non-consented opioid pain management reductions, basically a list of people who have ended their lives when their opioids were cut off by doctors. The post has since been deleted, but there's an archive on the internet. But he was just like this advocate for pain patients, and now he's being targeted. There are other doctors like him. He's kind of representative of other doctors that have stood up for pain patients and then been investigated, uh, like Forrest Tennant, who had his home and office raided by the DEA. Kate, can you... Talk a little bit about how some of these doctors are just getting kind of spooked by this crackdown and and how the response has been and and the people that are like standing up still, what their reaction is like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you can make a causal connection between advocacy and people being targeted. We don't know the details of the investigation. And so I can't, you know, comment uh, specifically on that. Um, I do know uh, a couple of things. One is, interestingly, when you look back at even looking into the mid-2000s at the physicians who have been sort of focused on by the DEA, they tend to be older doctors around 75 or 76 years old near the end of their practice. And if you look back at those cases, you know, some of them were behaving, were pill mills, were, you know, prescribing dangerously, but, but, you know, some of them sort of fell subject to a shift in the views on opioid prescribing. It's a problem for a lot of reasons. I mean, as a lawyer that uh, I'm troubled by all of this is that there is no definition of what an overprescribing physician is. Congress did finally realize that when it passed the Support Act and has directed the uh, Secretary of HHS to come up with a definition. But absent definitions, it is sort of like the Justice Powell idea of phrenography, this I know it when I see it kind of idea. And the problem is because we don't have a definition, we use proxies and dosage is one of those proxies that has been misused. I think in the case of Dr. Tennant, I do know, you know, he wasn't, I don't think he was ever charged, but when you have an ongoing investigation, it can be difficult to stand up and continue to prescribe. And I know that he did treat sort of the sickest of the sick and people who are on high daily dosages, high MMEs, you know, whether he was targeted for that reason, I can't say, but he certainly was someone who was treating people at higher doses. I don't know the circumstances of Dr. Klein's investigation. I do know that I have heard from his patients and that they are not able to find other providers and are just being dropped in care. And that's a pretty big problem that happens universally when pill mills are closed is, you know, these patients are sort of left with no options. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. There's so many stories out there about how a a pain management clinic, you know, serving 100 to 200 patients closes and it, maybe it's described as a pill mill, maybe it isn't, but either way it shuts down. And there is initially a news story or like a press release sort of like almost celebrating it. And then, you know, a year later, if you look back in that town at like a, a county level, the overdose rate goes up. So it's like when, when, when you close these clinics, you know, I don't know if anyone's done um, 
specific analyses, but I know there's some research out there that when you close these clinics, the the outcomes are you know not necessarily worth celebrating. Can you sort of talk about that? I know there have been a few cases, at least in the press, where so-called pill mills were closed, and there was at least nominally in the press, um, an indication that the DEA was trying to work with the local community to make sure that some of these patients found other physicians. But it doesn't seem to be happening uh, in the case in North Carolina, at least from the emails I'm receiving from from patients. And uh, I think generally, it is fairly well recognized that it is a problem that these patients are just, just dropped. I mean, you know, there's a problem with doctors being willing to even do medication management at all anymore because of the oversight that they're facing. So the likelihood that they're willing to take on someone, especially someone who's at a high daily dose from a physician who is, you know, sort of under the gun of the DEA is not going to be great. The incentives that we've created are, you know, in the opposite direction. I mean, I would say that with respect to this group of patients, we've really turned the normal ethical and legal obligations of physicians very much on their head. I mean, I would argue that we have a special duty in some sense, even ethically, to patients who did not start themselves on opioids to begin with. You know, there are bases for that in the ethics literature, uh, whether you look at good Samaritan laws, which, you know, you're not required to go save someone, but if you intervene in a way that endangers them, then you carry hold liability. Um, There are plenty of ethicists who um, look at people who've been involved in medical testing and argue that there's ongoing uh, obligations to those patients. And even if you look at sort of cancer patients who no longer about a third of people with cancer Um, have ongoing chronic pain, even when the disease is no longer active. And I think part of the reason that they, even though they're also experiencing a a clampdown, part of the reason that uh, the medical community is willing to treat them differently is because it's often, you know, treatment for cancer that could have led to the ongoing pain. So I, I think we have a higher obligation to that group of patients, ethically, physicians do. I also think just the general ethics of physicians to relieve suffering and to not put their interests above that of their patients. But it is also illegal under our civil rights laws for uh, a physician to discriminate against someone on the basis either of their medical condition, and chronic pain is a medical condition, or on the basis of the medication they take. And It seems like sickle cell is one case in particular where patients are utterly mistreated, their pain is undertreated, they're uh, characterized as drug-seeking mostly because they're, they're often people of color. Black people in particular have sickle cell disease. It's genetics. Have you had a lot of contact with, with patients from the sickle cell community? I, I've heard personally that it's, it's just so horrific to have a flare-up or an acute crisis and go try to get the medication you need and just be mistreated. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a mess. And sickle cell is is one of the more painful conditions that someone can have, first of all. And it, and it can flare in acute situations, but some people actually with sickle cell have chronic pain as well. Unfortunately, people with sickle cell get it from both directions. There are actual studies that show that the pain of uh, people of color is rated lower by doctors by one to two points on a pain scale. So 
already there is sort of bias that doctors carry that black and brown people feel less pain than Caucasian people. And that's, of course, not scientifically viable, but it is a perception and one that is stigmatizing and leads to barriers to care. And then on the other side, because of the way in which we have waged the drug war in this country disproportionately against black and brown people, even though you know statistics show that white Americans use drugs equally, to Americans of color and actually deal drugs at a higher rate, we have radically disproportionately promulgated and prosecuted uh, drug laws against people of color. And so there is this perception that physicians have as a result of sort of stigmas that arise from laws and policies as well, that Black people are going to be drug seeking. I mean, and there there are numerous studies that show this. There are studies, even Carmen Green did a study that showed that even pharmacies in black neighborhoods, if you controlled for income, don't stock opioids at the same rate as as white pharmacies do. So there are lots and lots and lots of studies that black and brown people are disproportionately perceived as drug seekers and that black and brown people just don't have access to the medication. So people with sickle cell are definitely suffering. Now, the, in one of its corrections, the CDC did come out and say that its guideline was not intended to apply to people with sickle cell. Um, they came out and spelled that out pretty clearly, but I'm still seeing a lot of fallout. That does bring us back to those guidelines and how the CDC basically kind of said, hey, you weren't necessarily supposed to take this this way. But has much changed in that aspect? It feels like things are just getting worse from my perception. Like, like We've had this whole conversation for several years now that, hey, maybe we should not have this hysteria about opioids. And it's I don't see a lot of progress going on in the other direction. I, I would say that there have been some changes, which I'm happy to go through briefly, but that it is not trickling down to the lives of patients. So when you have a misapplication of a policy that that happens in almost every state that happens, you know, at the, in, in insurance policies, in pharmacy policies, at virtually every level of the regulatory system, you know, just coming out with one article that corrects and says, oh, we didn't mean it to be applied this way, is just not realistic as a, as a countervailing force. So I met with the CDC in March of this year, along with Dr. Stefan Cortez and Laura Mills from Human Rights Watch, who had written the report that I mentioned earlier, and brought this, to our, this problem to their attention and urged them to make a public-facing sort of correction. Concurrently, some doctors groups had approached them, particularly uh, hematologists, doctors who treat sickle cell, um, and cancer doctors had approached them about how uh, the guidelines were being misapplied with respect to their patients. And so in April of this year, the CDC did issue a series of corrections. It sent letters to a couple doctors groups. The authors of the CDC guideline published an article in the New England Journal of Medicine basically saying that its guideline had been misapplied by policymakers in ways that endanger patient safety. Concurrently, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, um, came out with a warning and label change for opioids because it was brought to their attention that people were being uh, rapidly taken off and tapered off of opioids. And they suggested that this was a bad practice, a dangerous practice, that it risked patient harm. And then more recently, the Secretary for Health and Human Services issued guidelines for tapering. And tapering is a complicated thing because there are some patients who were put at, you know, 
one dose does not fit all. One size does not fit all. This is a huge group of people with vastly different kinds of conditions who are put on opioids, inflammatory conditions, neuropathic conditions, very different sources of their pain. Um, and, and some people were put on higher doses and may do better at slightly, slightly lower doses. There was a view in the 1990s that you just titrate a dosage upward to the point of palliation, to the point at which people felt pain relief, and you didn't really worry about the dosage someone took. And so there are studies that show involuntary, carefully calibrated tapering studies where people are given lots of other options for treating their pain, some people do better. Now, the irony of that is that a lot of people don't have those options to treat pain in the first place, but they do in these special studies. So, you know, tapering is a complicated thing. It's how it's happening in the real world is dangerous and outrageous. And I think, you know, that really is what the public health authorities were trying to correct. Um, And I don't think that has changed in any real way. But there have been these these statements by the CDC, um, by the FDA, and by HHS. And the CDC is now in the process of redoing its guideline. They're actually going to scrap it and start over again. Oh wow! Are are they like reaching out to you or the or other pain sort of groups and communities? Because I, I think last time around, maybe part of the reason why there was problems is that these were sort of written with like a maybe elitist institutional sort of top-down approach. Yeah. um, What they did was they opened it up for self-nomination. So I, I certainly threw my hat in. We'll see, (laughs) you know, we'll see who they, who they bring in. I don't know. I mean, they, the deadline was like February 7th and I'm sure it'll take them a while to go through the candidates, but they are, they did at least open it up and advertise it, which isn't really how, how it happened the first time around. But again, it'll take a while to, for those to develop. And, you know, the problem is that people are still really suffering in real time. And that's, you know, going to meet with the CDC and getting them to issue a corrective was a pretty obvious step. I fought a policy in Oregon where they were just going to force taper everyone without really having safety protocols for that. So there are some obvious candidates for, for going after, but how you shift the conversation on this when you, you know, when you're looking at most states and, and local jurisdictions and hospital policies and pharmacy policies and insurance policies and, you know, such rapid uptake all across the healthcare system. It's, it's just not obvious how we can really shift things to protect patients. And that sort of brings me back to the sort of, you know, candy colored photographs I saw at the hospital. You know, I think the prevailing view out there is still that these are, you know, sort of demon drugs and very dangerous and that we just need to be protected from them. So how you shift all the laws and policies, the narrative and sort of media reporting and, you know, sort of public perception is is a really difficult conundrum. Yeah, I would say that this is by far one of the trickiest and stickiest narratives I've ever encountered. It almost reminds me of like the war on terror, <laughs> like, like, like like to speak favorably of like a Middle East country is like hard for a politician to do. And it's hard for them to like say this about opioids. It seems like such a third rail at, at times and 
a lot of the the political discourse in in all the debates and the election stuff it's all like railing against big pharma and taxing opioids and going after the executives and i'm not hearing anyone talk about you know uh the the plight of, of pain patients in in and how they're caught in the crosshairs of a of a crackdown and I'm none of that's on, on the radar. It's just it's just so so difficult to to, to raise this. Yeah, it's true. You know, and it's interesting because that narrative is what is going to work politically at this point. But I will say that I've worked with several of the Democratic candidates who have shown more finesse in this area. That doesn't mean that they're not still out there railing against big pharma, and in some cases, rightly so. But um, the first person to reach out was was Julian Castro, and he did just a brilliant job of uh, understanding sort of the harm reduction goals and both, you know, all sides of this. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer in the race, but I also uh, worked on Bernie Sanders' platform and Elizabeth Warren's platform. And at least in terms of their platforms, they they address this head on. The plight of pain patients, access to medication. So it, it's not entirely lost on them. It's just not going to be part of the it's right. not going to be what sells politically. Yeah, like it, we're, we're not going to get the applause line on the debate stage. But if you go into the policy packages and, and, and in the weeds, you'll uh, yeah, you will see that with Warren. You'll see that with Sanders. Klobuchar, she seems to be sort of way off the mark on this and is like all about taxing opioids and like not really seeing how these sorts of things have uh have harm on patients. It's sort of, she takes her like, she's, she's like a prosecutor. She takes a really like hard, hard approach on drugs. It seems like. Not only that, I mean, you know, some of these candidates reached out broadly to experts and to advocates and to the disability community. She did. I mean, her disability policy is just abysmal. At best, it's window dressing and at worst, it's harmful. So, you know, like Warren and Sanders and even, believe it or not, Biden's campaign reached out uh, pretty extensively. So, you know, there's a there's a mixed bag out there. But some of the candidates are really quite, quite bad on this issue. Yes. Earlier, I kept saying that this is opioid hysteria. And I understand the baggage and the history of that term hysteria. So I kind of want to correct myself. It's such a bad habit. But I do want to talk about how this panic is translating to other prescription medications, such as stimulants like Adderall or even uh, benzos. Are you seeing that? I'm hearing stuff like, you know, we did a 180 on opioids. First, they were really great for things. Let's had them out like candy. And now they're the absolute most evil prescription. We have to, like, do all these other alternatives. Are you seeing that being translated to other prescription medications? Absolutely. Um, and, and interestingly, there was, I mean, I don't know how strong and good the study is, but one of the medications that is really being encouraged as an opiate alternative are gabapentinoids. And there was a study showing that they for you know, that people were at higher risk for suicide if they, if they use gabapentinoids. Like, again, that was one study that came out. You know, it is a cause for concern. I mean, I think there has been a real attempt to shift shift to other alternatives. But then there is also a concern that gabapentinoids in particular are being misused. So that's falling off as well. Certainly any of these other controlled substances, there's been more of a a focus on uh, as well. And then just sort of as an aside, the other issue that we've talked about before is, you know, the PDMP issue, you know, one of the ways in which these medications are monitored 
has been the development of physician drug monitoring programs in every state and, and U.S. territory. So if you fill a prescription for any controlled substance, be that Adderall or testosterone or opioids, it goes into these systems so that doctors can use them and check to see what medications you're on. Um, and a lot of pain doctors at least consider them fairly useful tools. The problem is that there are no privacy protections for them. HIPAA doesn't cover them. Law enforcement in, in many jurisdictions can have unfettered access to them or access with simply an administrative, they're not well, warrant, an actual warrant isn't required. So, you know, I definitely think that any controlled substance is is being looked at with suspicion. And there are all kinds of sort of privacy related issues that also are affecting patients and their ability to access these medications. The problem is, you know, the rapid uptake, we, we've sort of raced ahead to try and fix things without really thinking through the solutions. And so we've come up with very simplistic fixes like, okay, everybody should be at this dose. Even though the dosage guidance from the CDC didn't even have anything to do with people who were currently taking opioids. That was guidance about opioid initiation, someone who has never taken one before and how you should slowly titrate upward. So it's been, you know, ridiculously misapplied and the dose and duration guideline on the face of the CDC guideline are based on poor and low quality evidence. So the CDC came out when they issued these guidelines and sort of rated its different recommendations according to the evidence basis. And the evidence basis for the two, you know, those two areas that have been widely misapplied are low and poor. So that's problematic as well. But I think there's just been this partly in response to the narrative, partly in response to the, to the panic. And I appreciate, Troy, your correction of hysteria. We of the wandering uterus appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary. It's the whole thing is scary that we're we're making everybody has all this more scrutiny towards psychoactive prescription drugs, and and that's scary because you know I have pretty good health, uh, but at any point I could get into an accident or suddenly need opioids for some reason or stimulants. I feel like I could use a stimulant prescription myself. It, it could happen to anyone. It's uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people even realize, oh, this is just affecting chronic pain patients. No, if we don't all have access to this, th that's a huge problem. Yeah. And this is why I love reporting about public health, because the public aspect to it, and I think even discourse around the coronavirus or, or COVID right now is, is so revealing and illustrative about how one person's health matters to everyone's health. And if those around you are unhealthy, that's bad for you. If your neighbors are unhealthy, that's bad for you. If you're uninsured, not only is that bad, it's bad for others around you and those you love and care about and who care about you. It, it is the, the, the public health, I cannot emphasize enough, is, is about the public. And I think when we're talking about, about pain, you know, I don't personally have, have pain, but I've felt pain. And the last thing I want on anybody is to feel pain when we know that there is something out there that, 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 that can relieve it. And so like, I can't live with myself just knowing someone somewhere, somewhere out there is struggling when, when there's a fix, like it, 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 it drives me up the wall. And I think this conversation is a, you know, the, the crux of it is about that kind of empathy and about what it means to care about the, the public and people's health.
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, you know, the danger in the way we report on these things, though, also is that the reporting really is is less about that and is more, I mean, I think even with the coronavirus, there is a sub, you know, these are the people who got sick and that came from this particular culture. And so there there's a an attempt in a lot of the, the media, a lot of the press about whether it's about opioids or the coronavirus to sort of isolate out these people who are victims and some of them, if they're of a different race or if they're from a different culture, part of panic is created by otherizing, right? (laughs) Whether we did it in the HIV crisis or we're doing it in the opioid crisis by stigmatizing the people who are most affected because that means I won't be affected. That means the scary thing happens to them. And so, I mean, it's like, it's sort of a catch 22. Um, You're absolutely right that you would think that empathy and even self-interest, <laughs> um, you know, I'm healthy if my neighbor's healthy, um, would prevail in a public health situation. But unfortunately, where fear is rampant, we tend to stigmatize and alienate those who are subjected to these illnesses. Yeah. So what I would like to do is give listeners kind of some sort of idea what to do if this does happen to them. If you are suddenly cut off from your opioid prescription or for any reason you can't get one when you need one, what should you do? You know, everybody's talking about alternatives for opioids. Are any of them really that effective? I mean, I don't think that something like cannabis should replace opioids, even though there is a lot of evidence that cannabis can help with some pain, certain types of pain, certain types of conditions. It's not for everybody, but what should people do if they uh, suddenly lose access? Should they switch to Kratom? Should they go across the border to Mexico and bring back a bunch of tramadol? What should they do? You know, I, I mean, the problem is, and the thing that that's hardest about working in this area for me is, you know, there aren't great answers. I mean, I can't swoop in and, you know, find a doctor for everyone who loses one. That's just not feasible. And so if you're denied care, that's a, you know, that's a pretty difficult thing. You can, you know, try to, first of all, I think it's important to, to be really well educated, to have all of the corrections, which I've sent out many times on my Twitter feed about what the public health agencies are saying so that you can go into your doctor and say, actually, no, you know, that's not what they're saying. This is what they're saying and advocate for yourself. You know, and you can certainly complain that your rights are being violated, but there aren't a lot of lawyers taking this up. And that even is a long process. If you're, you know, in imminent harm, bringing a lawsuit doesn't do you a lot of good. So it's a very difficult situation. I think being as educated as you can to advocate for yourself helps. I do think, you know, in terms of other alternatives, the problem is there's huge variability among people and what works for them. I mean, opioids don't work for everyone either. Some people can't tolerate them. Cannabis may work for some people. I mean, I'm in Colorado where it's more widely available, but it's not the magic bullet for everyone either or for every condition. And, you know, I wish I had an a good alternative for people. All I can do is continue to advocate and give people the resources that I can, but people don't really have places to turn. Apologize in advance if this episode creates a flood of emails to you, Kate. (laughs) I get them anyway. (laughs) I do. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so great to know that there are voices like yours in this movement or I don't want to call it a movement. I think people are just standing up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I think people are increasingly starting to to stand up for themselves, which is 
important, but it's really hard to do when you're in terrible pain. You know, I mean, one of the reasons that I stepped into this conversation is that I am doing better than I used to be doing. Um, And so I feel like I have the bandwidth to advocate and have a voice. You know, it's pretty hard to advocate for yourself when you're in, in great distress. Yeah, I did a story for Vice about two years ago on a chronic pain patient rally. There were all these people that were going to protest. But unfortunately, a lot of these patients can't get out of bed. They can't leave the house. So they can't show up to a protest. They need people like us to stand up for them or to raise our voices. And I'm not trying to say I'm like, you know, a white knight or anything. I'm just trying to, you know, the the role of journalism is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I feel like the chronic pain community is really being afflicted right now. Yeah, I agree. And I appreciate uh, the work that both of you do very much. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. I think this is a great place to wrap up. We will blog your social media in, in the descriptions and you know, make sure everyone is following you. You're a really important voice out there and hope that this conversation shed light on where things are. And also, I think you know, it's a slow push to unravel a, a policy, but I think because of you and doctors like Cortez and, and all the patients online who are fierce, <laughs> they are making a difference. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Maraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by A.A. Alto. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. Narcotica is an ad-free program, but that would not be possible without the help from our supporters on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your contributions help keep this show free from corporate influence. Small announcement for our Patreon subscribers. If you have ever donated at least $5 to our show on Patreon, you are entitled to a free sticker. There's more information in a blog post on the Patreon page. If you like the program, you can join those Patreon subscribers. But if Patreon isn't your style, you can still help us by getting the word out. Tell all your friends, spread it around. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. That's all, folks. Have a nice night.